This is Ari Koretsky and welcome to Jews You Should Know, introducing the broader community to interesting and inspiring Jewish men and women making a difference in our world. Some are already famous, some not yet so, but each is a Jew you should know. And we are back with another fabulous episode of Jews You Should Know. This week, an incredibly powerful and timely guest, Sarah Rivka Cohn, is a mother and a professional living in Brooklyn, New York, and she is the founder of an incredible organization called Lynx. This organization services those children and teenagers in the Jewish community who have tragically lost a parent and offers them so many services, a place to go, support for their needs, so much more. And what an honor it was to speak with her for this week's episode. In particular now, during the whole corona crisis, she has been, as I said, in New York, really at the epicenter. And so sadly, there have been many, many Jewish casualties of this disease and the number of calls that she's been getting, and again, unfortunately, future cases, people who will need Lynx's services as they proceed through their grieving process over the months and years to come, has grown by quite a bit in the last couple of months. Thankfully, her service is there, and she's a voice of true dedication and inspiration in this process. Switching gears... Just a reminder to follow us on social media at Jews You Should Know, spelled out fully on Facebook and Instagram. Jews You Should Know with the letter U on Twitter. We are now actually on YouTube. Very exciting. Just search for Jews You Should Know on YouTube and you can listen there. It's just a static image with the audio in the background. Very, very excited about that. Of course, as always, please subscribe wherever you're listening, whether that's on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, wherever it may be. Share the word with others, those stuck at home during Corona, looking for some meaningful content to consume. Now is the time. Please share the word. And with that, we turn to our conversation with Lynx founder and director, Sarah Rivka Cohn. We are here with Sarah Rivka Cohn, the founder and director of Lynx, an incredible organization filled with compassion and love and an especially important resource during this time. How are you, Sarah Rivka? Thank God, doing well, sitting on a landing somewhere outside trying to find a couple minutes of uh, quiet here. That's right, the uh, corona life, we're all finding new and creative places to work. I commandeered my daughter's bedroom as an office for a while the other night, she was trying to go to bed. It was 9.30. I was like, what a chutzpah. You know, I'm, I'm trying to work here. And uh, so we're all being creative, as we must be. But anyway, Sarifka, tell us a little bit about where you're from and what your upbringing was like. Okay. So I grew up in Muncie about 30-odd years ago when it was quite a small town, if you will. It's, it's kind of strange when I go back to visit and all of a sudden these, these big stores and stuff like that when we talked about the fact that the pizza shop there the kosher pizza shop had like four little stools but yeah i grew up in muncie which is a bit up north from the city and 
Um, and then I moved to Brooklyn after I got married about almost 18 years ago. Um, I grew up as an only child. And my mother was diagnosed with stage four cancer when I was about two and a half. And really, the doctors have given her about six weeks to live. And she, thank God, surpassed that initial diagnosis by about seven years. So my mother passed away when I was nine. And it's interesting when I say, you know, thank God she surpassed that diagnosis. Because if she had died when I was two and a half, I certainly would have no memories. And she was a wonderful mother. So, you know, we kind of count our blessings with that. But yes, so my mother passed away when I was nine. And then being that I was an only child, it was kind of, you know, interesting upbringing after that. So it was just you and your father at that point from nine and on. Yeah. So actually, my mother was kind of a very creative and strong-minded woman. So she had some interesting ideas for my father after she had after she passed away and she kind of wrote it up. So one of the things was that my mother had suggested that I live with a different family that I used to go to a lot during her times in chemo because my father at the time worked in New York City. So the commute and him not being home because he worked literally from like eight to six or whatever it was, she just figured that, you know, it wouldn't be a great idea for me to be in an empty house with somebody taking care be part of a family. And, you know, she definitely suggested to him to get remarried, which he did. And once he did, to take me back. Um, but the interesting piece of that, I will say, and I say this to parents all the time, my father did an incredible thing, is that he used to come visit me every single night when I lived with his other family. But every, obviously, Shabbos, we spent together. But during the week, he came to visit every night, literally never missed a night. And he would come stay sometimes just for 10, 15 minutes. I was tired, it was bedtime, I wasn't, you know, exactly the most talkative necessarily to my dad, um, but he, he came and he never failed at that, which was an amazing, amazing piece of, in terms of my own grief journey, um, that the constant of knowing that was, was a big one. I'm really struck by the amazing vision and strength, in particular of your mother, as she is facing her own imminent demise being able to think about what she wants for her daughter, how the arrangements should go, how her current spouse should remarry. It's really a remarkable presence of mind and courage. Yeah, it really is. So your father remarried. How old were you at that time? So my father actually remarried later on that year. Like it was about 10 months later, I think it was. Um, so, you know, I, I kind of, I stayed a couple months longer with the family and then I went back um, home. My father did remarry someone without children, so I remained the only child there. Um, and that was pretty much uh, it. Was that challenging for you that your father remarried so quickly after your mother's passing? I know sometimes children could see that as a betrayal. Right. I think it's interesting is at the time, I certainly didn't. I was a very easygoing kind of kid. Um, which we'll talk about a little bit later, is that I think that made it very hard for people to imagine that I was grieving mm. because I was that kid that everybody said, well, don't rock the boat. I mean, look at her. She's doing great. So I was exactly that kid. So And, and it wasn't a fraud. I really was a very easygoing, happy kind of kid. So I don't think at the time I found it difficult. I think later on there were certain pieces of it that sometimes were challenging for me to think of. But um, ultimately, I think it was, you know, it was beautiful and right choice. So in the moment, you don't remember yourself feeling in dire emotional straits and you were kind of just moving through school regularly at that time? So, so here's the interesting story, and I think people will 
this will resonate with anyone who was kind of this personality. My mother died on, a, actually she died on Shabbos um, and the funeral was on a Sunday. Um, I did not sit Shiva. I was a nine-year-old and my father and the rub gave us, you know, asked me, so to speak, what would you prefer? Would you like to stay home and sit Shiva? You're not bas mitzvah yet. You don't have to. If you'd like, you can go to school. I took one look at my house with a bunch of crying adults and said, I'm out of here. Tomorrow I'm going to school. Now, this was a long time ago. We've evolved as a people. We've evolved as a society. You know, this was way before the days of uh, therapy being in vogue, like they say. And I show up at school the next day. Nobody bothered to tell the teachers or the principals to give them a heads up. They kind of had been to the funeral yesterday. And I think that what I heard later is they kind of thought they could buy themselves a week to figure this thing out, right? I was the first kid in the school who had ever lost a parent. And I was the only kid in the school for a while who had lost a parent. It was just the very different days. And we were a very small community. I came back to school the next day. <laughs> Let's just say nobody knew what to do. So I had kind of my teachers being a little bit in shock. And so I think that became the theme song is that people said, well, I don't know what to say, so let me not say anything. And I think, you know, people sometimes err on the side of caution with that, but I'm not sure that it's always the right thing to do. And I don't in any way fault, you know, anyone in, in the education system. I think this was just very different times. Um, but they really, really, really said nothing and did nothing. And I think they kind of the message was, you know, if she doesn't bring it up, we're not bringing it up. If she doesn't seem to be grieving, we're not, we're going to say that she obviously is over it or she's fine or whatever we want to say. I had a couple of funny stories because of it. One of them I'll just share was that this was in the fourth grade and we had a new kid in class. And my mother passed away in the beginning of December. So you realize this is like the first week of school type of situation, a couple of weeks in maybe. And this new kid um, saw me, the, it was actually a couple of days after my mother's funeral, and I'd been sitting on the floor kind of cutting out some arts and crafts thing that we were making for Sukkis, I remember. And she said to me, she says, you know, don't sit on the floor. My father said this like when people sit Shiva. And I said, well, I actually am sitting Shiva. I'm just not at home. Oh, my. Her jaw dropped. She had no idea. So there wasn't any conversation with the class. There was no conversation with, you know, things. It was a question of which parents knew and what they shared with their children. So these were very different times. But I think that very much played into today how I run things and my assumptions about the kids who are doing fine. I may have a little bit of a different view on it because I've kind of been there, done that. So then moving into your teen years, how did that continue to unfold? Okay. So, so, <laughs> yeah. On the audio, you can't, hear the, you can't hear the faces. You can see the faces, right, that I'm making. So here, here's where I'm going to just kind of jump ahead and tell you a little bit about what I tell parents today and very much as she, not just by my own experience, but by the training that I've, I've since had to learn that my experience is actually quite normal. So in a nutshell, most of my grief came out, if you will, in my teen years, like I would say from 15, 15 and up. So basically what happens is that when children lose a parent at a young age, they experience what usually is called delayed grief. That means their grief will pop up. Usually I like to tell parents anywhere from 13 to 19 is when it begins. So a parent says to me, okay, so what can I do with my six-year-old now to prevent it so that that never happens to them? The bad news is that you can't really. 
the good news is that if you give them an opening, and what I tell parents all the time is that if you know that this is not a rejection of any sort of strength that you have or anything in your parenting or anything, no guilt here. This is just what it is. It is the process of grief because as much as it's the process of child development, when a child at the teenage years begins to develop a sense of identity, right, separate self from parent, then all of a sudden it's like, wait a second, who are these parents that I'm even separating from? I don't know my father. I don't know my mother. I don't know, even know who they are. They died on me so young, right? And there's kind of all that. And then there's just a lot of deep emotional pain that sometimes comes with that. And so sometimes, you know, for the kids who are more intellectual, it will play out in some really weird kind of questions that they suddenly have to figure out. And for kids who are more on the emotional spectrum, sometimes it'll just be about like, I'm a mess. I don't even know why. Um, I can tell you that many of the kids that I deal with have this period in time where they'll go to the cemetery like once a week and just all of a sudden out of the clear blue and the mothers or the fathers sometimes go crazy because they're like, seven years I'm offering you to go on your site and you don't want to show up and I take you kicking and screaming and now you want to go once a week all by yourself without me even there? Like, what in the world? Right. This is all part of figuring out who's this parent I lost. I want to connect with them. This is the only way I know how. So for me, what happened was actually it was in about 10th grade. I was about 14 and a half, 15. And actually that was like, I, didn't, I wasn't even aware of just where my feelings were coming from because, of course, I have this insight now, but I didn't have it as a teen. And nobody else around me apparently had that insight either. So I had this like whole mix of like a volcanic mix of, uh, of emotions. But they were like kind of a fake because I was this good kid who scored well. Um, and it was just, it was like a mix for me, really a, a toxic mess inside. And then what happened was I actually had um, a class where we were learning Parshish Yisro, and it was in, in a Chumash class, and we were doing some self-guided work, the, the like in partners, and we were going through the Ten Commandments through the Asaras Adibras. And you get to the part of Kaveh Esavicha Vesimecha, honor thy father and thy mother. And Rashi over there talks about the V'es, one of the things is your father's wife. And all of a sudden, my partner, who happened to have been a very good friend of mine since kindergarten, looks at me and she goes, and, and, and just to explain, I was really open about my mother's death. Like, this wasn't a taboo topic. Thank God it wasn't a taboo topic at home. But it was just, like, very surface level. Like, yeah, I lost my mother, you know, kind of stuff like that. But just, it, it is. And she looked at me one suddenly and she goes, you know, so what if your stepmother says something that contradicts your biological mother? Who do you have to listen to? Now, here's the ironic part. I couldn't think of one instance. It wasn't like I had this idea in my head of what, you know, what it could be. But I, I love the idea of I'm different. I'm not like you. I have something, some loss within me that you don't have. And I was going to flaunt that suddenly. It was like such a weird kind of feeling. So I said to her, I'm going to ask the teacher. And she was like, ready to die. She goes, no, you're not. You're not raising your hand in a teenage classroom like this in a 10th grade classroom. I said, no, 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 I'll spare you the agony. I'll go to her after class. And I went to this teacher after class and I asked her this question. And she says to me, you know what? I'm going to call this rabbi. He's really good at it. And I thought, epic fail. I don't really care what the answer is. I didn't say that, of course. Um, and then what happened was 
she actually was not an epic fail at all. She pulled me out of class a couple of days later and she says, you know, I asked, and this was the answer. And everybody always says to me, so what's the answer? I said, here's the best part. I don't remember because what she said next had a much bigger effect on me. And that was, she said to me, you know, I don't think that's really what you're asking. I think what you really want is to talk more about your experience. And here's the next genius. She said, and I'm not the right person. And I say this all the time, this story, because I think it's incredibly important for people to realize that even if somebody approaches us, we're not always the right people to handle what this is. And it's okay if a student approaches a teacher or if a, a kid in the neighborhood approaches you and you're not the right person. What she did next was amazing. She said to me, but I have a suggestion of someone who is. Okay, so she recognized her own boundaries of what she couldn't, couldn't do, and she was able to refer me onwards to someone who could be helpful to me. And the reason that person was helpful is she said, because she lost the, her mother as a kid too, and she might be helpful to you. And she was a, an adult then, she was a mother, she was a teacher, and she was somebody who was a phenomenal, phenomenal person within my life. Um, and she asked me for permission to connect us. So she respected my privacy, my dignity. And as a teenager, there's nothing more valuable than that. So it was like win, 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 win. Um, and that's, you know, that's pretty much the basis of a lot of what I do in terms of peer support and a lot of what we do in terms of our staff being people who are today successful adults who happen to have lost a parent as a kid or a teen, um, the value can't be underestimated of somebody who kind of just gets it, even when you don't have to say it. So you as a teenager were having kind of this delayed grief, as you said, did that kind of help you keep it at bay? Did that really settle you in some sort of way? So I, I think it wasn't, you know, it's not cut and dry. It wasn't like that was the solution to all the problems. Um, I certainly dealt with a lot more of the grief as an adult um, than I could have at the time because, again, I wasn't as aware of what the tools are and neither was anybody else. But I could say that, yes, it definitely kept me afloat, definitely kept me in a place where it was manageable. And I say that to people all the time is that we can't necessarily solve all the, all the pain and all the problems and we can't do that. Um, but if we can keep it to be at a point where it's manageable, then at some point when the time is right for the child or for the teen, they will deal with it. So where did you go in your own life? Did you go to Israel after high school? What was your own trajectory? I, I think I'm probably not the typical kid um, in terms of that I grew up in a more Hasidic type of background in Muncie. I went to seminary in Brooklyn. I had this dream since I was a little kid of being a teacher. And I did. I taught for several years. And then I really realized that I had a passion for writing. So I wound up becoming a freelance writer. And through that, I wound up becoming um, a features editor at a magazine called Vina Magazine, oh, which nice. is a, a female magazine, a magazine for women. Speaking of 15-year-old girls, my daughter was recently interviewed by our neighbor, our good friend, Aviva Werner, for Bina. For a oh, wow. Yeah, for a story about a backyard camp that she was running with a friend, something like that. That's amazing. So Aviva was one of those whose work I edited. Um, so then what happened was that through that, actually, interestingly, I got into like writing for marketing and stuff like that and working for some marketing firms. I wound up doing some of the most unique marketing um, contracts for the city hospitals. 
where basically what they were trying to do with Figurette, how to get their messaging to the observant community in a way that was sensitive, respectful, and yet would service the needs that they had as a hospital. So it was very, very uniquely challenging and a lot of fun um, to straddle that. But at the same time, I started this organization, Links, while I was teaching. So this was in 2006, right? Yeah, April 2006, I started Links, which we'll talk about a little bit more, which is an organization to serve as children and teens who've lost a parent. At the time that I started it, it was kind of like a side thing. I actually had a secretary working in my pantry. I took out a couple of shelves <laughs> and I put a MacBook in there, an iMac actually, one of these old iMacs, if anybody remembers them. And I put them into there and that was where she worked. And then eventually we got an office and about, I think it was six years ago, I quit my jobs and I said, okay, this is full time. I'm all in. And fortunately, unfortunately, we've grown exponentially. We have like a staff of about six in our office today. I mean, not today, today, but yeah, <laughs> virtual all. office. But, yeah. but on, on a regular basis, is correct. Um, what, what Link started out, interestingly, um, is as a publication. It was actually, we started it as, you know, taking the writing piece. That's why I brought that in. Um, so I was a writer and somebody asked me, she says, why don't you start writing for kids and teens who lost a parent? And she said, I think a magazine would be a really good idea for teenagers. And I said, okay, great idea. I'll help whoever wants to do it. So she's like, no, 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 no. You have the experience. You're personally affected and you're a writer. Go for it. So actually our initial email address was Lynx Magazine because this is all we thought we were starting was a magazine for teen girls who lost a parent. And I was cool with that. Um, I think the it's girls. Like, correct. And, and it's interesting. I'm going to tell you about this is that we have two completely different programs, one for girls and one for boys. Anybody will tell you, any, anybody worth their salt, is that although everybody hates to separate things by gender, boys and girls agree very differently. And you'll sometimes have the mistake is that female therapists who are treating male clients, if they're not under good supervision, they will tell you this kid who's 16 years old is, is playing football all day or learning tomorrow all day or anything of that sort. And he, he's not grieving. No, his grief is just different. And you as a woman are looking at it through female eyes. Um, so yeah, so the magazine was started originally for teen girls, very much addressing teen girl issues that were related to grief and how teen girls typically grieve. And then we had, it was very interesting. It kind of went from there into about a year after we started, about seven girls showed up at my dining room. I had, I put like a little ad in the magazine and I, crazy as it was, I said, you know, we'll get together in my house. If anyone wants to come, here's how you RSVP. And seven girls showed up. Now, just backtrack for a second. How did I get these girls? How did I get the list? So one of the things that I had made up right from the get-go was that I didn't want us to be vultures. I didn't want people to feel like, okay, you got the death certificate, and with that comes this organization at your door. No, it had to be something people were comfortable with and at the stage that they were comfortable with it. I have families who joined five years later. Mm. You know what? That's okay. Everybody's grief process is different. And I think it's a mistake if we push things on to people at a time that seems right to us, but may not be right for them. So what happened was I, 
I knew 10 of the families who had lost the parents. So I started with those. And then what I did was I took 50 extra copies. I printed 50 extra copies and I sent them to educators and rabbis within the community. And I said, here's a new project we're starting. Have a look at the sampler publication. If there's any family you think can benefit, introduce it to them and have them call and put themselves on the mailing list. And that's pretty much been the motto of how we do things. We still do a lot of outreach within the communities to principals, to movers, shakers, and people within the community in the Beaker Holem aspect and the hospital liaison so that, you know, people who are dealing with families who they may encounter and they want to have that resource, you know, after hospice or something, where do I send them? So this has been very helpful to them and it's been a helpful referral base to us. And so the families kind of come to us versus we go knocking like, you know, kind of on their door. Uh, and ambulance it. chasers or, 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 or uh, hearse chasers, I guess, <laughs> in that sort of sense. You uh, know what? It's, it's, it's a very real problem, though. I, I, I've heard this from people sometimes, that they feel like if there's a diagnosis of illness, suddenly that six organizations like almost insist you need to take my services. Um, you don't know, you could really benefit this, that, and the next thing. And, and sometimes families just feel like I want my privacy. I want to do my own thing. And, and you know what, even if we want to say that things are not going well, I mean, I'm not talking about if there are safety issues here or, you know, anything like that. But, you know, sometimes we're like looking at it and, and I will have plenty of families where I'll look at the sidelines and I'll be like, I know help is needed very badly. I know we've done our fair share, either through the school or through a therapist or through something. They've said no. That's their prerogative. That is their prerogative. I can't make it better for everyone. Dignity of choice. Yep. Absolutely. Where were you? Where were you in your own family at that? Time? Where were you living at this time? Had you started your own family? So yeah. So I had moved to Brooklyn. Um, I was a young mother when I started the magazine. My husband was my graphic designer. Uh <laughs> is that his profession, or just uh... so no, my husband parents were actually involved in graphics and stuff like that. So he always like had this love, you know, they had those IMAX in the early days and he kind of tried out all the Adobe suite programs as they were coming out and he just had fun with it and he was good. He's still from time to time, if I'm in a bind, will design things for me, but he's a social worker. Okay. That makes <laughs> sense too. <laughs> yeah. yeah the, the social worker piece is actually new for him. He was a, a principal and a camp director for years, but oh, yeah. Very we cool. basically we have a fun household. That That's what it sounds like. That's what it sounds like. So yep. I'm, I'm picturing these seven, you know, young women sitting around a table. Was this kind of like a? Uh, this turned into sort of like a brainstorming session for for a yes. launch. Like what what happened over there? So what happened there actually was those kids sat around, and they. I I think we have to one day come up with a way to really thank these seven heroes. If I ever could remember who all seven were, I remember four, but maybe they'll remind me who the others were. They sat around the table and they said, "What about doing a weekend?" And I was young and crazy, and I said, "Yeah, that sounds nice." I said, "I guess I could find a hotel and we could do this." You understand that they're not paying for it, right? So. I, I didn't have any questions in my mind that this could work and that we would do it. And what we were going to do there was anybody's good guess, but I, yeah, fine. And this was, I believe in 2007 and we set up our very first weekend. And honestly, we had no idea if people would bite. Like we sent out the invitations and we were like, okay, let's see what happens. And we had 50 girls who responded five zero and they said, we want to come. And this one was telling that one and the next one. And these kids were calling like you can't imagine the ecstasy and some fear 
of we're going to come and we're going to sit with other people who lost a parent. And we had a couple of speakers lined up who had lost a parent as, you know, kids and teens. And we figured, great. And I remember like they came on Friday. We had them coming, I think like mid-afternoon. And it was just like, they were from such different backgrounds within the observing community. You know, there's a very big range. And this, this range was certainly well represented there. And we didn't know what we were doing. I mean, we'd never been in the hotel industry. We've never been in, in the retreat coordinating industry. Um, and I also, frankly, knew very little about the grief process other than my own experience, which I will tell you was my biggest mistake. Um, but we had a lot of good intentions and we had a great time. I will tell you, it was an extremely intense weekend. There was a lot of, a lot of crying, which doesn't happen anymore. It does not happen anymore. We don't have now, not that everybody's, you know, the things are hunky dory or people are, you know, of course there's tears, but there I'm talking about, we had like a full half hour of like everyone almost united in tears. Like this was like the, the, the craziest things if I think about it. But it was very powerful. There was something very, very beautiful and magical about it. And then on Sunday, when we had the closing address, the kids were like, we're not leaving. This is just so good and so cozy to be with other people who get it. Like, we need to do this more often. And it was through that that we kind of created some of the year-round programming of, like, different times that we get together on a, on a smaller scale and do even some fun stuff together or process things together. And it's been really, what can I say? It was It was... We just had our 11th um, Shabbaton. And just to give you context, there were about 220 girls there. Wow. How did you fund that first weekend? Yeah, we were very lucky initially that we had somebody who was a tremendous partner initially and kind of treated this as a startup, for lack of a better word, and like kind of invested in us. And he's still a partner in the sense that we have a lot of things that we work together, but obviously our budget right now is almost close to a million dollars. It's kind of a little bit different than it was in those days. But um, in those days, he really, he undertook at least 50% of things. Um, and then I don't remember how <laughs> we raised the rest, but I told you, I was young and crazy. Young and naive, that's all it takes. Um, yes, and definitely, you know, definitely we did that. And it was, it was a magnificent experience. I think that when I was saying, you know, the two things, if I could tell my younger self in terms of running this and, and stuff like that, the two things that were lacking, one was very much in terms of my own inner work. And back to what I was saying in terms of as an adult, it was a couple of years in where I really realized that this thing is much bigger than my pantry and that I'm dealing with girls and, you know, making some mistakes along the way or different things from, like I said, from a good place, but many of us are there projecting our own experiences, right? Like if this is something I would have wanted, then everybody should want this, or I, I know what has to be done and I'm going to fight for it and stuff like that. It's a very dangerous place to be. I started my own therapy journey. I started a journey within therapy that I don't know if it will ever stop, honestly, because so long as I am in this line every single day, I need to to be making sure that A, I'm in a good place emotionally, and B, that I'm under also the second piece, which really I started, I would say about four years ago, was regular good supervision to ensure that although I'm not a clinician, I am kind of what I call the triage person in a lot of ways, and I need to make sure that I'm not in any way allowing my own experiences to cloud what's best for this family or best for this child. And I must say that I, I'm so grateful for the journey because it's been an incredible journey, but I'm also just 
blessed and grateful that this is something that I know now that I can be responsible and that we're doing this from in, in the way that it should be done. And you hired someone, a professional to oversee your case management, so to speak, for lack of a better term? So, yeah. So right now, the way the office is structured, just so you understand a little bit, we have a couple of people in-house who work on taking calls, managing events and stuff like that. My role, of course, like in many organizations, has transitioned much more into the fundraising role as well as the Not a million reasons for that, it sounds like. Right? <laughs> uh, but there's also, I've also always been the kind of person who was extremely creative, loved to start things, hate to finish them. So for me, I'm in a dream job right now because I get to start programs and have amazing secretaries who say, I could never dream that up, but give me the phone numbers of the people that we can do. Like now we're doing a bunch of Zoom things. Do you think I have patients that chase after everyone and figure out if they can be on at 7.15 or 7.30? Not, not happening. I could though figure out a program like probably nobody else in the office because that's my strength. And you know, I, I'm very active on LinkedIn and my hashtag is tales of a leader. And one of the reasons for that is because I think I've worked very hard at my leadership. And part of my leadership is that I, within the organization, I like to hire people who are much better than me, who are wonderful, who I can delegate things to, and they take the jobs I hate and they do them so well so that I get to do the jobs I love. And you know what, so often it's hard to give over. I always say it's like a, you take a baby and you foster it and then you have to give it over. So I had like a Kala program that I was doing for our brides and I loved it. It was the best part of my work because like here I'm dealing with all this death and then I get to see these kids get married and work on the wedding planning and I, I'm a really good wedding planner and this was just fun. And then, then what happened was that it got too much. and weddings were happening and they needed to happen within six weeks and i'm thinking corona now with some of our brides having you know kind of their weddings rearranged and stuff like that if i didn't have my staff doing that these girls would be high and dry left high and dry so i had to give it over was it the hardest thing to do one zillion percent was it right yes so people ask me all the time you know is the organization better now than it like i had some of my early girls who will tell me eh, it's not like it used to be you know when we all used to call you good old days you. yeah <laughs> right right so I, I will say that I am still very careful about the fact that I, I, I do like to keep things personal. I do like to, you know, somebody asked me last night if I remembered how she got into the organization. I mean, say she's a kid and she's like, how did I find out about you? And I said, I think it was through so-and-so. And she said, oh my God, how do you remember? So I do try to still know about our different families and we have weekly meetings where we meet. So even if somebody else is managing something, if the call comes to me at any point, I know where things are at. At the same time, I won't lie, there's no way that exponentially, right now we're dealing with, I think it's like 980 families. And unfortunately with Corona right now, we had 70, 70 new families within the observant community who lost a parent and have young children home. We're talking about an additional, I think the tally this morning was 267 kids. Oh my goodness. So there's, there's just exponentially a much bigger pool of people. And we also, I think it's important to say, I, I'm based in Brooklyn, but we service kids all over the world. We have a branch in the UK. We have a branch, as you know, in Baltimore. We have um, a branch in LA, and we're working on something in Chicago as well. 
and of course the New York, New Jersey branches. So there's a lot happening. And when it comes to our weekend, we actually pay 30% of the tickets for the kids to fly in from anywhere. So we get a lot of flights. We did 57 flights this year. So, um, so yeah, there's, there's just no way that we would be able to do everything we do. So do I sacrifice sometimes the fact that maybe it's not as cozy in different ways? Yeah, I hope, I hope that we're able to give people something better for it. Sounds like the story of really any social venture startup, you know, where it does yep. go through evolution and through phases. And it's always your baby, but Ooh, yeah. <laughs> um, right. what ages are you really working with? And, and also, when did you start dealing with that other gender? Voice. Males? <laughs> They're right. Okay. So that's actually a really good question. Um, so actually, in 2012, um, somebody, Mrs. Mimi Gross, approached us. Her, she had lost her husband, Shlamey. He'd been a wonderful philanthropist within the community. There's actually a book on him, a biography called Shlamey. And she was left with a young son, 11 years old. And she came to me, she said, why aren't you doing boys? I said, well, honestly, I've got my hands full with the girls. I, I don't have not enough funding and not enough manpower. And she said, okay, you know, I'll, I'll be your partner. I'll do the, the boys and you do the girls, so to speak. And we were still dealing mostly with teen girls. Like I wasn't dealing with young girls at the time. And she said, let's start with boys. So she was thinking, let's start with the teen boys. And my husband, who had been um, a Rebbe for many years, came up and he said to her, you know what, Mrs. Gross, I think we're making a mistake. When it comes to girls within the observing community, many different types will meld together in camp and seminary. At a wedding, you watch women, 12 women who don't know each other, sit down at a table and they're all good. Those boys are not like that. They need to have either more similarity or you have to get them young enough where they don't know that they're different from one another. So his option was, let's start with the young ones. They'll become a group. And by the time they're 13, 14, they don't remember that they're supposedly not like the other guy and they'll be fine. And that was what we did. So we started, actually, we had a very interesting thing going on. We had Shlamey's Club going on for kids from six to 12. And we had Lynx was doing the 13 to whatever age girls. We basically go up to about 23 and single. That's what we consider our teens and young adults. Anyway, and then what happened was, of course, you know, a few years ago, these, these little boys grew up and that's when we started our teen boys division. So the boys was kind of going from, which it does right now, basically from six to 19 for more or less for the services. The reason we kind of stop at 19 is a lot of the guys go to Israel and stuff like that. So at that point, there really isn't much local need for different things going on. And by the time they're coming back, they're like in a different stage where one-on-one -on -one dating coaching and stuff like that, but the regular events and the stuff happening is not really for them at that point. So we kind of had the programs going from six to 19 with the girls, because they do tend to come back and stay local. We have it. We, we actually started in 2017, finally the preschool and elementary division. So now we have girls from like about five or six going up to 23. What are some of the differences that you observed between the way boys and girls grieved. <laughs> I'm going to get myself into so yeah. much trouble about this. I know, I know. One of the generalizations, we'll give the caveat, all the disclaimers, there are always exceptions, of course, but generally speaking. So I, I, I want to just say something. This is also true of widows and widowers, and, and I have many widowers complain about the fact that there's a million programs that you'll see advertised, like We Help Widows. They're like, may we remind you, there are also widowers. And men and grief, and this is true of our society, kind of people assume they don't grieve. I don't know what else to say. So like even when we started to say that we were doing programs for boys, there was some like question of like, really? Like they would even come? They would be interested? 
Like there's, oh yeah, well they'll come if they don't have to talk about stuff. So there's a lot of this notion of like boys won't talk, boys won't cry, and boys, uh, I don't know where their emotions are, right? Except that there's a problem with that and it's a huge, huge issue that we deal with is we're dealing within the marriages with men who have a complex ability, inability to form good relationships with their wife or with their children because they're little grieving boys within them that never were dealt with. So basically it's like the attachment piece went haywire and they never dealt with it. And then all of a sudden there's like this, I, I don't do emotions. And like I explained to one one fellow this morning, I said, you know, when you shut off the main valve of water because there's a leak, it might be a good idea for a short run. It's okay to do that. The problem is when that's left off for so long is that all emotions are turned off, happy emotions, sad emotions, stuff like that. Um, so really that was kind of what gave us insight into what are we going to do? Now, the fact remains that boys don't have the patience for the DMCs for the most part that girls do. They don't. Um, so we had to figure out a way to do it. And pretty much what we've realized is that with young kids, the goal for us was to have fun events where they could build peer, just circles, just the kid next to them who's nine years old who they could say, I also hate saying Kaddish and Shul. That's all. They don't need more than that security blanket to be able to say a statement next to that and to have adults who are trained on grounds when they're going snow tubing or anything who can come back and say, you know, I think we need to have this kid in therapy. Let's figure out how we can do it, right? This is not so much the gender that does well in group support groups or stuff like that. Um, they're not running to an event that has a flyer about how to manage your grief, but they love to join the fun. Now, what interesting happened was when we started doing our weekends, so we were experienced in doing the weekends for the girls, and the girls' weekends are very intense. They are. They're a lot of fun on Friday. They're a lot of fun on Sunday. But come Shabbos, when the kind of the cell phones are off, the communication with outside, you got to face up to your emotions. We do a lot of hard emotional work. We have like niche roundtables and workshops that really cut to the core of what's going on. And it helps a lot of kids jumpstart their healing journey. And we looked at the boys and we said, can we do the same thing for boys? Is that realistic? And one of the things that I said is there's this popular game out there called the Ungame, um, which people may know about. It's just like a series of questions that it's like an ungame because it's not really a game. It's just meant to be for discussion. And I created a deck of cards with some really funny, weird questions like who makes the best challenge in Borough Park to what was your worst experience davening for the Ahmed when you were in Avelis? So mix of questions, all kinds of things. And I gave the deck of cards to the men who were running the groups on, on Shabbos. And I said, try it. And they looked at me and they laughed and they said, okay, you're a woman trying to plan programming for boys. I said, you know, just humor me. Try it. And they came back and they told me they went on till two o'clock in the morning. And one of the things that we kind of started studying about this is that when you mix it with the light and heavy with the boys, it goes over much better. If we would have tried to do two, three hours worth of just intensely heavy emotional questions, which is like the stuff we do with the girls, we would have found them all walking out on us after three minutes. The fact that they were able to break into it made the emotional stuff sustainable. Oh, I have so many more questions for you and so little time to get through them all. I want to ask you about Judaism and religion. Do you deal at all with faith struggles that might emerge I can only imagine that these kids could be struggling with such things. 
It's only natural. And also, if you are, you're dealing with such a wide spectrum of kids across the observant community from Hasidic to modern Orthodox. How do you blend those together when addressing matters of Judaism and spirituality where they might have very different perspectives to begin with? So the one thing I will just quickly say is that in my trainings, I've met people from you know various faiths and stuff like that. And what we realized is faith-based grief is a whole different animal. So the fact is that part of the reason that we, we have the niche base in terms of observing children is because they're dealing with it from a very spiritual angle. Um, and, and the crisis of faith is unique to them in, in its own unique way. Yes, there are kids from different backgrounds and different educational systems and stuff like that, and they certainly come at things differently. What I have found is that everybody's so respectful of one another's way of doing things, and that is a culture that we very much worked hard at and we want. So I think there's a lot of respect for the different spectrums. I think also the piece in terms of the crisis of faith, we absolutely deal with the spiritual struggle. For most of them, what happens is I find is that normalizing it, being able to share, and, and there's just so much that I have to say on this topic, but it's a, it's a podcast for itself. But normalizing it, usually what that allows for is riding the wave and making it out fine by the other side. It's about realizing that this is a connection and like any other relationship, it will have its ups and downs. And that that is at the core of what a good relationship is. If you didn't have the ups and downs, there is no relationship. You're only angry at someone you love. Because if the person meant nothing to you, if the being meant nothing to you, God meant nothing to you, you wouldn't care. Is there a difference that you see Again, as a generalization, whether the deceased parent is the mother or the father? Yes, 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 yes. Absolutely. Okay. So research basically is, is that if a child loses a mother, they lose a nurturing part in their life. And for some of them, that makes definitely for a more challenging journey in emotional nurturing of themselves and in being able to emotionally nurture others. That's the focus of some of the therapy that we will deal with is allowing them to kind of create a self-love, self-care, a lot of that stuff that may be lacking. Children who've lost a father for the most part um, struggle with the insecurities. It kind of like leaves them a little bit feeling a little bit more vulnerable and they sometimes feel a little less secure. That's kind of the real generalizations. Obviously, every case is different. I think, by the way, one thing that's important to say, a lot more than anything else probably would crystallizes the key difference is what the relationship was like before with the parents who passed away, what the relationship was like with the surviving parent. Those are really the two key factors, both research-wise anecdotally and actual research into what really shapes a kid long run. You really read my mind because that's my next question is, what do you do when the relationship wasn't so great before? I can imagine people are sitting around at a retreat and one girl turns to the other and says, I miss my father so much. He was so wonderful. I have all these great memories. And the other girl's thinking to herself, you know, my father was a tyrant. Uh, I didn't have a good relationship with him and the guilt that must come along with that and the feeling of maybe not belonging. And how do you deal with all of that? So when I, what I alluded to before is that Friday night, we have actually what we call niche roundtables. So there's about losing a mother, losing a father, losing to sudden death, losing after prolonged illness. And there's all different niches. One of the niches that we had was losing to sudden death. And a few years ago, we had some girls who approached us and said, would you ever consider doing a table for those of us who lost a parent who took his own life or her own life? 
right? And that's naturally going to bring with it a lot of stuff and a lot of anger and a lot of, and it's very different than somebody whose father just had a heart attack or died in a car accident. That's not the same kind of sudden death. And we were kind of a little bit taken aback by the fact that kids would actually sit at a table like that with that kind of title. And eventually we figured that they wanted their own separate room, which is what they did. And, and there's been a lot of conversation around that. So yeah, it has its own spaces within each category, kind of allowing for that child to process whatever anger it is, sometimes to acknowledge that the person was limited in whatever capabilities they had. And sometimes it's just about the start of a journey to know that this is a piece that needs to be worked through. And this child's going to need a lot of help within therapy to be able to work that through. But we have a lot of hope for them. What about the pensioned widows and widowers, you know, the parents of these kids? What support is there for them? I, you know, I imagine, again, just trying to put myself in that, in that place. They're adults, you know, and they're, their children are off for this weekend and they're getting all the support. And then they might, you know, be home looking in the mirror and saying, you know, what about me? I'm also in pain. So we made a very deliberate decision not to include the parents within our weekends or within our programming because we felt that, particularly with the teens, they needed to feel we were aligned with them. Of course, we will work with the parents, you know, on the parenting piece, parent-child relationship, but I can't get into the struggles that the parent has and be aligned with the child. It's kind of like in therapy. You can't see a mother or and a child. Conflict of interest in a certain way. There's a conflict of interest, exactly. So what there is, is there are a couple of organizations for widows. There are no organizations for widowers, as I said from before. Part of it is because people don't believe there's a need enough to be able to start it. Part of it is also because the organizations for widows are all begun by widows. And for one reason or another, when I broach this with some of the men, it's a little bit challenging for them to be able to pull off starting something to benefit their own self-care. We did start a group for fathers on dealing with their children as fathers. There is an excellent book called The Group, which is a fabulous secular book on a guy who, a psychologist who had a group for seven fathers. And he said, if I had ever called the group a support group for widowers, not one would have shown up. It was for fathers who have lost a spouse and had to deal with their kids. And I must say here, part of the reason that we say children who've lost a parent versus orphans is because the English language, I don't know if you know this, for the most part defines orphans as one who has lost both parents. In the Hebrew version, in the Torah, we talk about a yasum as somebody who has lost either parent. Halachically, we have obligations towards an orphan as somebody who lost one parent. It is very interesting to see that within the communities at large, or when you'll go on to, you know, different websites dealing with orphans, they need to have lost both parents. It's a unique distinction that I think gives us some real insight into how the Torah, how Judaism views the family unit and the value of each parent. And we could probably go on for a while with that, but just in closing, to get current, we're in the midst of Corona and tragically, so sadly, the Jewish communities, especially in New York, have been ravaged disproportionately by this disease. Tell us a little bit about what's been going on there and what your experience has been throughout this recent process. So I actually actually wrote a note to some of my staff this morning, and it had here, I'm just going to pull it up because I think there there was something there. I wrote the following to them, and I think that it may be worthwhile. I said, we generally don't operate under crisis. 
we believe that since we stay the long haul, it's best for us to be less involved in the beginning so that the families aren't uncomfortable having shown their vulnerability and then having to meet us at a later point. Afterwards, right. So we kind of do that. And yet, I don't know what happened within this crisis, but somehow my cell phone began ringing. Little voices on the other line. Is this Lynx? My father just passed away. My friend said you could help me. Questions came in. Can you describe to me how Kriya works? Is it normal that I'm not crying? I'm never going to survive without my father. He was an incredible person. And the adorable preschooler who I schmoozed with over FaceTime who said, I'm not taking a bath until my tati comes back. And I don't care. So there's just been this wide range. And there's been so much pain of the fact he was just here three days ago. He was in my kitchen. I mean, like, what do you mean he died? Or like we had a couple of families who said he was, he was doing so much better and now he's not. It's been a very uniquely painful journey because I think one of the reasons that we're seeing such an intense kind of pain is because it's just been a whole bunch of sudden stuff. You know, I, I, I describe oftentimes, and I'm just going to like do this quickly, but I describe a lot of times the difference between death after illness and death from something sudden. I describe it and this, <laughs> this woman definitely will relate to the difference between a natural childbirth versus a C-section. With a natural childbirth, there's tremendous labor pains, but afterwards the recovery is fairly straightforward. With an illness, there's a lot of pain and agony before. There's a lot of ups and downs. The recovery, though, from that death is, is fairly straightforward. When you have a sudden death, it's like that sudden unplanned C-section. There's no pain before. The recovery ain't pretty. This is what we're looking at right now is, unfortunately, there's a lot of shock, a lot of suddenness to this, a lot of uncertainty a lot of what makes you think this is not going to happen to the next person in my family, right? A lot of the fears and the anxieties are very, very, very normal. So we've been trying to kind of do some hand-holding, see what can be done right here, right now, different needs that were right there. But we're also very patient. Like people keep saying, what are you doing right now? I'm like, they're going to have to wait this out. There's nothing that I'm going to be able to do right now that's going to quote-unquote cure them. Grief is a natural process. We don't want to make this into anything pathological when it's not, or anything even, it's not a psychological problem. Grief is a natural process, and it just unfortunately will take a lot of time, possibly longer than it would in, under normal circumstances, but we want them to know that they're not alone. Our slogan has always been and will always be, we're in it together, and the idea is that at least if people know that they don't have to go through this, it's not a lonely journey, they don't have to go through this alone. There are other people who've been there, done that, who've experienced loss and grief and are willing to hold their hands. We hope that that can mitigate at least some of the pain. Hey, time takes time is an expression I've heard before. You, know, you can't rush that. And I was like, maybe in a year from now, you'll have, you'll have the upsurge in cases, so to speak, more than, more than right now when that's really settling in. People. Right. We, we see people coming now, but we keep saying our plan, our proposal that we put together is an 18-month plan, and it, it looks at what we think the family's needs will be at every three-month mark. Incredible. So, Rivka, where could people learn more about you and what you're doing? You said that you're pretty active on LinkedIn, other social platforms. What's the best way for people to discover your amazing work? So, on Instagram, I'm at, at links underscore Schleimies Club. Should be fairly simple to find because those are our two divisions. Um, what I use Instagram a lot for is also for the adult services. A lot of adults now who are in their 40s who lost a parent as a kid and say, wish I had this kind of support then. I use Instagram very much to address some of those topics to create awareness around them. 
for both them and their spouses. Um, we're having actually a class tonight on, let's say, how to talk about grief to your kids without allowing your own inner child's grief to spill over and traumatize them. So I try to cover topics that would be appropriate for them and bring on professionals. And then on LinkedIn, I'm under Sarif Kakone, and that's where you can just learn all about the transparency and the crazy life of running a nonprofit and what, what that's all about. And our website is we're in it together.org. Sarah Rifka Cohn, founder and director of Lynx, just an amazing organization. We shouldn't need it in the Jewish community, but sadly, we do need it. And we're so honored and grateful and thankful that you are there to provide that service and to offer so much hope and healing to these children and their families. Thank you so much for joining us. This has been Ari Koretsky on Jews You Should Know. Please visit us at JewsYouShouldKnow.com and subscribe at iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you consume podcasts. Find us on social media at Jews You Should Know. If you'd like to become a supporter of this podcast, we would greatly appreciate that. And you can do so by visiting Patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash Jews You Should Know. Finally, If you have enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review so that we can continue to grow and introduce many more people to Jews you should know.